0: Welcome to the Learning Development Project Podcast. We believe that publication should be the start and not the end of the conversation. Our goal is to open up learning development as a field of academic practice by exploring the
1: ideas that inform it with the people who wrote about them. We are your hosts, Alicia Siska and Karina Buckley, the co editors of the forthcoming book on how to be a learning developer in higher education. Today, we are delighted to welcome Trevor Day, who has recently retired from his position as Director of the Royal Literary Fund's Consultant Fellows Programme, where he led training on writing development workshops and writing retreats. He has an extensive back catalogue as a writer, capturing his career twists and turns in marine biology and popular science, as well as education, including a book about sardines and Journey to the Centre of the Atom for Children. Today, however, we're going to talk about the newly released third edition of Success in Academic Writing. So thank you very much indeed, Trevor, for joining us today. A pleasure. Um, Before we get started, is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself that you'd like our listeners to know?
2: Um, I know it's quite neat you've done that little bio um, that I started off as a scientist. Um, and then became a social scientist and I've had parallel careers in education and professional writing and those two have gone side by side I think that's quite important in terms of understanding where I'm coming from.
1: Brilliant thank you very much so I I guess um, I mean I'm intrigued I did have a little look at sardines online and I was tempted to Get it? I may yet. Um, but what's what's the development of your ideas? How did you take this journey? How have you gone from marine biology to leaving that behind, despite the parallel paths and getting into writing?
2: Oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> okay, I uh, we've got to go back to. Um, I started off as a career uh, working for the UN Development Program, doing the job I I always dreamed of doing which was doing uh, fisheries biology in the developing world, sort of helping other people, you know, making the world a better place. Um, however, the reality of the job involved moving from one place to the other, and moving country and only staying in a country for one or two years perhaps on a project before you move so- somewhere else. So the reality of doing the job was not like the dream. So I ended up in London, sort of leaving that job and wondering what as a marine biologist I was going to do, sort of washed up in London, what was I going to do? And um, almost at the same time, I started doing two things. I started writing for books Mm -hmm. um, and I started getting involved in education and teaching in private colleges. So we're sort of going right back to the early 80s, and I started writing parts of what were back then time-life books, uh, which may well be before your time. <laughs> um, and nowadays you probably have heard and all know of Dorling Kindersley books. Mm-hmm. They have DK on the cover, and they're very highly illustrated. Um, and I got involved in working on books like that. And at the same time, I got involved in teaching. So these two things were sort of going in parallel. I then decided I didn't just want to write in private colleges. I wanted to be formally trained in teaching and, and, um, you know, work in the public sector. So, but having already started writing books and by that time I'd actually written whole books like about biology. Um, that that would be read by students, it was sort of in my blood by then. so even though I was involved in education, I couldn't stop writing. It was sort of like a compulsion and um, gave me something I wasn't getting anywhere else. So that sort of carried on throughout my career that I've balanced sort of education and writing you know um, and they've gone side by side and sometimes because of personal circumstances you know as your career your life evolves things happen and there have been times when i really had to work mostly from home so the sort of education side sort of throttled back and i did more writing and then um the other times when i did um yeah, you know, more ed- getting involved more in education, but I I think I need to, I'm talking a lot. I'll fast forward really because it it does set the scene for the book Success in Academic mm-hmm. Writing. Um, in the late nineteen nineties, I could see that there was going to be a problem being a book writer and actually making enough money from that because of the rise of the internet. You know, online. And I could see that people would start getting stuff for free that they previously paid for in print form. So I decided to go back into academia, do a doctorate, which was in an area of applied science within education. And in doing that, it kind of opened up a whole new career for me because I could now um, much more sort of formally Get involved in writing with a sort of more an academic slant, and they the writing would very much complement anything I did in academia. And by the and I was doing my PhD part time, and by the end of doing it. Um, the The people at the university were saying, "Well, could you start running these courses? You're a professional writer, you know. Could you start writing courses for doctoral students?" And this was before I'd actually got my doctorate. And so, by the time I'd got my doctorate, I was really well set up. Um, I got uh, involved with the Royal Literary Fund and became a fellow, which meant, as you probably know, you know, really, you're a tutor within the university, seeing students and staff. Um, And I did that for a few years. And then this is the lead in, really, to the book we're talking about. (laughs) So um, Then what happened was I guess several things came together because I've been a professional writer for like 20 odd years. I'd been a tutor, a Royal Literary Fund Fellow for four or five years. And I'd also been involved in um, a a group at the Royal Literary Fund to develop new programmes. And they wanted me to run a programme. Now, at this point, I thought, surely there's a book I can write that's going to bring all this together. The point being, I was used to writing how-to books. Mm -hmm. I've written them on all kinds of things, even magic tricks, you know, um, how to design experiments on all kinds of things, you know, using toilet rolls or whatever is in your home. So I've written lots of how to books, but I wanted to write how to book for students. You know, I wanted something that if they couldn't get to see a learning developer, but had qualms about writing as many do and that was going to be a real friend to them and would help them there was another reason though which was because i was going to run this program for the royal literary fund i wanted to be sure i was familiar with all aspects of writing and of course even if you're a tutor you know you may get to see lots of different assignments but it doesn't mean you get to see them all And, you know, you may have your own strengths and weaknesses, and I may be good at some things and not others. So writing a book was going to make sure I was really up to speed. So it kind of came together. And there were lots of things I'm very committed about writing. And I wanted to make sure those things were in the book. So I think I'll shut up. Um, and so, i'll probably come back to those things
0: yeah yeah actually why don't we just stop uh, on these things for for a moment so what would you say are the kind of key ingredients of your book that make it different from the? because ex- obviously there are lots of books on writing but your book stands out for particular reasons and i wonder yeah. where you see those as the kind of key ingredients
2: lovely um I think it's very holistic. Mm -hmm. So I treat writing very much in the round. Everything from how you construct sentences to how you might manage your working space, plan your life, look after yourself, not beat yourself up about Mm -hmm. writing and so on. So I try to cover all the bases. Um, I'm very keen on developing students, developing metacognition. So I'm very keen on getting students to think deeply about what they're doing. So this is why I came up with this sort of IPACE model, which it draws on the work of other people. It's actually um, Hickman and Jacobson. The model is called IPACE, which is the mnemonic i standing for identity p for purpose a for audience c for code which is really format structure and writing style and e for experience which is what you're bringing to your writing task so what i was trying to do in the book is go i'm always aware that everything is context related So, whenever we start talking about writing, we have to think about context. You know, if which discipline are we talking about? What approach is being promoted, and one thing and another. But there are things we can talk about at a sort of meta level, and that's what I think with the IPACE model that it gets you thinking about what you're doing. So, when you get a task, rather than you know, oh dear, it's another writing task, and I hate writing you go, well, okay, what am I trying to do here? And it seems to me it's good to talk about identity because like it or not, you know, I guess we'd all agree, we'd hope that students do aspire to have some kind of identity within their discipline. You know, I imagine myself as a midwife or I imagine myself as an architect or an engineer or whatever. And that means something to them. And it's something they're moving towards. So, say by the end of the undergraduate degree, they're going to be in a position, hopefully, to take the next step on that on that journey. Um, so, I sort of start with that and go, "Well, okay, when you're writing this assignment, what are you aspiring to be?" You know, mm-hmm. and and I get students to think of words to describe it. Like, you know, if you're doing a scientific report for a practical um so what are you aspiring to be what's your identity when you write this report and i get them to come up with words like you know guide clear communicator whole bunch of other things but you know i then would ask them to translate those into qualities so what qualities do you need to express that identity so you might get something like you know clear concise uh comprehensive so you know that you're good at doing all these different things, and then you can go well. Okay, which which are you good at, and which are you not so good at, or you just don't know anything about it yet. So it's almost like a planning tool very early on, where they can start to think about what they're aspiring to do, think about the qualities they need, and think about maybe where the gaps are. Um, so it's all about thinking deeply about the task now me chatting about it, it's taken a few minutes, you know, Um, but, you know, it would take a, maybe just a, a few minutes for them. And the whole model, you know, the first time they do it might take, you know, a reasonable amount of time, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. But once they've done it once, you can do it much more quickly in the future. Mm. You know, purpose, I try to think about things in the round, you know. So what was the what was the assessor's purpose in setting this assignment? You know, what do they want from you? And then what's the purpose? What do you want to do to convince your assessor of? And the third thing I would think about is, how does this uh, help you in the long term? You know, because you've just got this annoying task to do over the next week or so. So how are you going to get motivated to do it? To me, you know, it's good to try and gauge motivation. So say, well, okay, so where's this going to get you? You know, an obvious, you know, a lot of students probably would say, well, I just have to do it, don't I? Don't have any choice. Um, But you could say, okay, so you're going to develop certain skills. How's that going to help you? Obviously, the bigger projects, it's more obvious, you know, but. Do well this year in these assignments and you get a better choice of work placements for next year. Get a better work placement and that will help you in your career to get the job you want and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's things like that. Audience is another one, which is, I think, some of the time (laughs) people in universities don't tell students enough about the persona they adopt when they mark work. You know, and it seems to me they do adopt a persona. So they want, you know, they want the student to write the thing. But there are certain implicit things about it, like. It'd be good if you wrote it like you were writing it for another student. But you're also going to have to explain yourself, because if I'm marking it, I need to know that you understand certain things. So I need you to write it as though you're writing it for another student at your level. But I need you to show that other student that you've understood certain things so I can tick it off on my mark scheme. So, I mean, it seems to me often they don't. Uh, well, ideally, I think it'd be great if always they make that explicit. Anyway, I've stopped now. We're on IPA. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I'll stop there. But um, you get the idea. It's thinking holistically about what you're doing. You're sort of shifting position gets you to think about the reader. You know, I think that's a big thing for professional writers, professional writers. We have to really, really think about the reader. Okay, you could argue if you're a poet or a novelist, are you doing that? But in certainly non-fiction writing, in many areas of writing, you're having to think about who exactly am I aiming at when I write this? And for me, I actually imagine them in my mind's eye and I try and have a picture of what they're like. And when I'm writing, I try and satisfy them, you know, like, I think this will be amusing. And in my mind's eye, I try and imagine whether it will be, or so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I've sort of got a little inner running dialogue visual thing with a reader. Um, I think all that's important. Um, yeah. It's It's what I call, and other people have called, as I'm sure you've come across, sort of writing in the bones, where you've thought so much about, deeply about what you're doing and who you're writing it for, so what your purpose is and who you're writing it for, that it kind of goes into your bones. You mm. don't have to keep stopping and thinking about what you're doing. You, you've you absorbed that, and now you're writing to meet those things.
0: Mm. And it kind of brings it back to identity, right? Because once it's in your bones, it's become mm. part of your identity. And I think I found this element particularly compelling in your mnemonic, because... I mean, both of us, Karina and I, we are very much interested in how writing develops identity and how writing is um, informed by identity and all these connections. And here, when it comes to um, emphasising this element with the students, it seems that it's also it would be a a big motivator for students to... um, to approach writing differently, to change maybe their relationship with writing as well, and and um, well understand it better and feel differently about it. Um, so that that felt to me like a very important aspect um, of of that model. And mm-hmm. as a learning developer myself, I found compelled to change some. Aspects of how I talk to students about writing and incorporate that uh, element. So, would you would you say that this is one of the tools for learning developers that they can use from the book? Um, And if so, which other aspects would you really like to draw attention to?
2: Wow. Okay. Okay. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. As you know, it, it was written for students. It was primarily written for. Undergraduates and taught postgraduates. But the one thing that surprised me and be rather delightful is the feedback I've had from learning developers, for example, and academics. And they say, well, actually, the things you've raised here were relevant to us in our practice, too. So um, that's been really pleasing. Um wow. Uh okay, I I'm thinking of things like We talk about metacognition and deep learning in the book, uh, what I'm trying to do, it it comes back. I'm going to spin off on a sidetrack in a moment, but it's a bit like trying to have a sort of Socratic dialogue with a student, you know, a student comes to you and they have a problem. And the easy thing, of course, and I know this myself, is say, like, well, what you need to do is X, you know, <laughs> it's obvious, isn't it? Or this is the best way to do it. Or look, everybody's or most people do it this way. But, you know, that's not probably not going to make any difference to them. So, you know, you find out, well, what what are you doing? Um, how are you doing it now? And Why aren't you doing that? so you for example the classic thing i find or you will know among some students is that they basically leave things too late and strategies that used to work probably in school or college no longer work so you know they used to leave things late so they wouldn't waste time and um that worked well for them because they could sort of do everything in a last minute scramble and they manage to get by and it worked all right. But of course, at university level, that's a much harder thing to do. And you're going to need to be thinking more deeply about what you're doing. And you can't do it in a mad scramble at the end. So, you know, you could be asking questions about well, why are you why are you leaving it so late? Or why do you think you leave it so late? And if they start to unpick their own strategy they begin to realise that that's not really going to work very well for me anymore. And I need to find another way of doing it. But if they've started to unpick it for themselves, of course, they're much likely to act on it and find a way through that. Um, So. I'm I'm not sure I've I've quite answered your question um, because I've got so many tendrils going off, but it's about having this sort of dialogue um, about what you're doing so that it's something you can change. If you know what you're doing um, and you think about it, you think about how you can make it better, how you can improve it. Mm-hmm. I was an influential paper for me, which I imagine you both know, is by David Nickel, um, about making internal comparisons you know, about students. Um, It's about giving feedback, but encouraging students to make their own comparisons.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that
2: really resonated with me um, because I guess that's what they're doing. You know, if you take them through a sort of Socratic dialogue, they're seeing what they do at the moment and then they're going, yeah, that's not very good, is it? That's not going to work very well. or because I do that, you know, I don't give myself enough time to do all these other things that I ought to be doing. And so they begin to see that they need to dismantle what they're doing. And they start to make these internal comparisons about what they're doing now, maybe what they ought to be doing. And, and I think that paper was sorry, very spoke to me in, in a big way, David Nichols' paper. Um so sorry, coming back to it. Um Thinking holistically, I think, is very important. And I'm sure you come across all the time this thing um, about confidence and about not beating yourself up and anxi- anxiety about around writing. And there are t- there aren't a couple of there's a key thing here I did want to talk about, which, again, you'll be familiar with. Um, but it's more about where you apply them you've got these twin tensions haven't you in academic work it seems to me creativity and criticality being creative and being critical and how do you manage those Mm -hmm. and to me the time not to be self-critical is at the beginning of your process you know and if you're self-critical when you start that really can undermine your process. So when I work with people, I spend make sure that that's out the way, that they're not beating themselves up right at the very beginning. And say, well, you've got plenty of time to be self-critical later. Let's just get out what you think about this, what your ideas are, and and starting off loose um, and developing your ideas. And I think that applies equally, frankly, to undergraduates as it would to postgraduates, as it would to staff, you know, start loose and then, you know, refine. Because when I started off, we if we wanted to edit stuff, we had electronic typewriters. And the only way we could edit was if it went back on the same line, you know, with a thing like Tipex, And then you had to type over what you'd already written. You could only do it on one line. Well, now you've got word processing software and other planning tools so you can play around, you know, providing you've got time a lot more to develop your work. So taking the pressure off, particularly at the beginning, actually figuring out what you already know. You know, as we know, there's an awful lot about linking what you're trying to do with what you already knew. So what do you already know? And often it's a surprise, you know, more than you thought. And then, you know, maybe bringing crit- uh, creativity in at different stages in different ways. And then sort of the self-critical bit, the, you know, comes later and you build in enough time for that. So I suppose a key message for me in the book, but generally would be how you balance the creative and the critical.
3: Hmm.
1: I I, um, I was really struck by that Um in the book that you do emphasize right at the start of the writing process, creativity, it's right there um, at the top. And I think it it really plays to the person as a whole. You've been talking about the holistic process of writing, but there's too much emphasis, I think, in higher education broadly on the product. And what we're doing is we're trying to get students to write and there's a thing. We're not trying to develop students as writers and giving them permission to be creative, I think, is um, that stood out for me as something as mm. something new and different in in this book. Um, we we just don't we just don't teach students how to become or think of themselves as writers, and I think that's probably endemic throughout the sector for a lot of people.
2: And and it must be said that uh, I think. Many of the staff mm. do not see themselves as writers, you know, they re- they may be researchers. That's the bit they really enjoy. Mm-hmm. They enjoy the bit in the lab. And the annoying thing they have to do afterwards is write the write the stuff up. So, yeah. And, and as we know, the um, not only may staff say if we're talking about academics, they have uh, assumptions about what writing is, which are probably very different to our assumptions. You know, seems to me a lot of staff, particularly, I would say, I'm, I'm always dangerous to generalize, of course, but you know, if we're talking about, shall we call it more technical disciplines, shall we say like STEM disciplines, they are more likely, more likely to regard communication as fairly transparent. It's something you do at the end and you're trying to communicate your findings as clearly as possible and as elegantly as possible to your audience. Mm. But, you know, we know there's a whole load of bunch of stuff under it under that. You know, there are in writing, there are power relations, there are values being expressed. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Those academics are probably not interested in that. And not something they discuss and so on. But to students, you know, students could come at this. And I guess with undergraduates, they don't necessarily have time to interrogate as much as we might like what lies below the surface. Because, you know, if you've got to write a practical report, you've got to write a practical report. You don't want to sit there with your sort of, you know, fist on your head wondering how practical reports came about in history and so on uh, you just want to get it done well <laughs> um, but it 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 would help I think if if staff and also just knew more about writing and about communicating about writing because you know it also seems to me lots of staff just have opinions about writing you know whether they like commas or whether they like dashes, or whether they like parentheses, whereas a lot of the time that's just to me personal preference. It's mm-hmm. not something you want to bother students about, make a big issue of, when either you know, and any of those punctuation marks might suffice in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think if if staff understood more the, as we do at the different levels. You know from sort of structure and argument right down to the sort of nuts and bolts of sentence construction that would be a good thing they could help students more with their writing which I know you could argue is doing learning developers out of a job but I kind of think there's so much that needs to be done that you're always going to have a job <laughs> <laughs> Very even true. if it's helping those academics do their job better uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah. I mean the more people can be engaged in that process of developing students writing probably the better because we will always approach it from different angles and even us as learning developers if we get one session only with a cohort of students per year um, I mean where do you even start what do you actually focus on do you focus on the process do you focus on the product sometimes students just want a very quick recipe for success in in writing right and they don't even this they say very openly sorry I don't have time to think about it I just need to write this assessment. Can you help me, right? And 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 so actually, there is an element of luxury uh, in in thinking about what writing really means to us and how it's uh, part of who we are and how we can develop better. And same goes for for staff, which is the. The kind of s- sad, self perpetuating cycle, right, uh, between students and, and staff. But uh, this is why we're doing what we're doing here, because we feel it's it's worth spending that time to to think about writing.
2: And 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 you, I think it was Karina. I think it was you that said this was about you know process rather than product. Mm-hmm. That you know often staff in departments are worried about they're getting the product mm-hmm. and they don't really know what student processes are. And I'm something I'm a real fan of is modelling. Um, and this is what my doctorate was about, which is modelling good practice. You know, it seems to me if you've got five students that are good, whatever that means, successful at writing essays, you know, find out how they do it. And if you ask the right questions, which is not easy, of course, um, to find out how they actually write an essay and try and dip below the surface. You know, how do you know when to stop? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: How do you know when you've done enough and you can submit it? So you ask questions that go below the surface. If you ask five different students about how they write an essay, you'll probably get five different answers, of course. Um, they're uniquely different but you'll also find there is a big overlap so there are certain key things that they do share and I think sharing that with students is really useful you know saying so these successful you know students they share these things in common but have you noticed in detail they do it all differently and that's quite nice to see where you've got a sense of conformity where you agree and do it There are certain key things that are all important, but actually the way they're expressed is done individually. And you Mm. can probably look at the the five things and say, well, I like the way, you know, Sonia does that. And uh, Jerry's got a really good technique on this and pick and choose. So I think that's quite generative. And it's all really coming from the students. And, And that will be a revolution, a revelation to staff. Because uh, it seems to me for many staff, because they they know students somehow do something and pop out with a product, but they don't actually know what, how they do it. And it seems to me, if you want to help people do do something, we were talking about this, you know, writing. If you want to help them write, you've got to be talking about
1: process. Mm. And I wonder if this is the answer because you've um, obviously expanded in in this new edition um discussions around academic integrity and things like that and if we help students understand their process better and why they're doing something and what they can put of themselves into it is that is that the answer do you think ultimately to issues around academic integrity
2: Yeah I think the the other thing is of course I'm a fan of making the implicit explicit, which is why I, you know, I'm really happy with people using exemplars.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: So in an ideal world, I would even say somebody's, you know, these students are in the first year, they've got to do this task. So how are they going to do it? You know, they don't know really what they're doing yet. I would be a fan, frankly, of giving them exemplars on a sort of spectrum from Mm. these not so good this is pretty darn good and and the range and even let them work out what the range is you know which one's best you know or just give them three which is the best one which is not so good and which would lie in the middle Mm. let them work that out and then they get to see what they're trying to do and what are the things that make the work not as good and so on it's not identical to the tasks they're going to do but it's something like it Mm. and hopefully they can transfer learning from that to doing the tasks themselves which is much better than going sort of blind into it and and of course as a professional writer you know if you're going to write a book you need to know what the other books look like that that publisher has published you know I'm Mm -hmm. sure for your upcoming book. I don't know if it fits in a series, but if it does fit in a series, you know, you'd obviously want to know where the other books in the series, what they're like. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah.
0: I feel like a lot of what you've been talking about and the way you've been approaching the, the various aspects of of student writing come from a perspective that a learning developer would share. And because, you know, you're talking about co-creation, you're talking about empowering students, you're, you're talking about this kind of um, approach of working with and alongside students rather than, you know, at students, <laughs> talking at students. Or, um, so I wonder, how close do you feel to learning development on the one hand but on the other hand also what is your professional identity and and again this is also because you have so many different layers to your own a professional identity so how do you find yourself on that spectrum of, of different kind of educational i i, I think
2: <laughs> i i think i'm a bit unusual in that insofar as myself as an educator and myself as a writer developed alongside one another and i do actually talk about both those identities and somehow or other they coalesce somehow mm. but i don't wouldn't probably be able to easily say how but l- let me give an example so i think i'm unusual and i think i for various reasons i've been in my career i've been involved in things like counseling so I've got a sort of psychological background as well, which I think helps with the learning development side of things. You know, you're you're thinking about a student holistically and thinking about what they think and feel and so on. I did want to just come back to this thing about um, the professional writing side. It, it's quite interesting because um the programme that I was director of, essentially what we were doing was training professional writers to work in universities, to run workshops, writing retreats, variety of activities. And in a sense, where at least some of the authors were coming from initially was they're, they're a sort of product themselves. They've got some sort of identity in the world. They're known as a novelist or a poet, or a biographer, you know, or a science journalist or something. So they've got a sort of writing identity. And of course, they get invited to things like literature festivals to expound about their book and about themselves as writers. And in the training, what I was very keen on was moving them away from that Mm. to yeah, but what matters actually is the student learning. That's that's actually what matters or the staff member, what are they going to learn after your session? They may have been wowed by you, entertained by you, but have they actually learned anything? Hmm. So over the course of nine months, we did a training um, that was you know, based on the sort of framework standards of a few years ago. and. Um, What we're really trying to do is to shift them from thinking about themselves to thinking about the student and trying to work out what what are you going to do in this session in terms of activities to help the student learn. And so our training was very sort of 360 degree feedback training. So students would give feedback, observers would give feedback, the client who'd invited them into the university would give feedback. And so they're getting loads and loads of feedback. And they're also observing each other run workshops. So over nine months, they could shift a lot. And they can shift from you know, being worried about how they come across a, a literature festival to how the heck am I going to help, help these students grapple with this assignment? But the interesting thing is, when we did a bit of research about these consultant fellows, you know, basically, they would say, I'm a writer first and foremost, and anything else is afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a learning developer writing developer second, you know, my primary identify uh, identity is as a writer.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: I don't think that's the case for me, because I think they grew at the same time. So I Mm -hmm. hope that finds expression in the book yeah Mm. Mm.
0: Uh, to uh, flip it a little bit (laughs) on its head um how important do you think writing is in terms of being a learning developer so how important is it that learning developers would actually write and publish as well rather than just uh, work with students on their own learning
2: well, I think you two have already written about this, <laughs> in, in your sort of liberatory practice and so on, and I'm right with you. Um, I, I think it's problematic um, helping students do something that you don't do yourself. And so you are trying to do it at several, at, at least a couple of stages removed from the experience. So I think in an ideal world that learning developers should, if they're going to be talking about writing, they should be writing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they already do write a lot. Presumably, they do write quite a lot. But they should definitely be encouraged to do more writing. And yes, they could write and be published. Although ultimately, of course, what we're talking about is the writing they would do in learning development to be published, get papers published, is not the same kind of writing that they're probably the -hmm. students are going to be doing. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be loads of transferable skills Mm -hmm. from this other form of writing that they can bring back to their work with students. Although, again, hopefully very much aware that, you know, your liberatory writing practice you use in learning development and publishing won't necessarily sit very well with your science student that's just trying to get their, uh, you know, practice report or or practical report written. Um, But definitely, I I agree with you um, as much as possible. And that was another reason for me writing the book. You know, if I'm going to write this book that's all about writing and I'm trying to do it from beginning to end holistically, you know, I had to do a lot of work myself. You know, I hadn't when I wrote the book, I hadn't done a poster in can't even remember when years ago. So if I'm telling students how to design a poster, you know, I had to talk to lots of people, students and staff. About how the heck you know in modern day you design a poster, so I had to do a lot of that legwork and mm. actually go to them. I didn't really have the luxury. I'm trying to think if I actually I have done posters since, so I have done some posters, mm. um, and collaborative, collaboratively done posters with other people. Yeah, I think that's really important. It. I didn't want the book to be about theory. I want the book to be about practice while also not being about just the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. to operate at a much deeper level as well mm-hmm. yeah
1: well as you say at the beginning writing is is for learning one of the key benefits of writing is to learn so it sounds like in writing this book you've also learned a lot about writing <laughs> uh, indeed yeah uh,
2: absolutely mm. um I mean, I had that i model in mind before I wrote the book.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But yes, there were definitely things. And, you know, the experiential learning cycle, I, I quite like it. You know, it, it kind of regards the learning process a bit like an experiment. You know, mm-hmm. you try and do something and then you're going to learn from it in a cycle and learn from it and then apply that to some, the, the next time you do something similar. I kind of quite like that experiential learning cycle. And, you know, that was really reinforced when I wrote the book. So when I wrote the book, it was also a test of do these things hang together? You know, do I believe this stuff? But actually, when I get to test it out, it it falls down. And gradually I was able to test it and feel pretty happy about it. You know, it feels like it does hang together.
0: Well, um before because I really am tempted to just dive into a little bit more into writing itself, but just before we move move on to that, when you speak about learning development um, It just comes out so naturally like you completely understand what learning development is and you know you're you have that awareness of of the field and what we do etc and it's actually quite rare for us as a professional experience to you know hear people with this kind of level of, of engagement and understanding of learning development and I was just wondering you know Why do you think that is and what can we do and how can we become a little bit more of a household name or more familiar uh, within the context of universities? I'm not even talking about outside universities, but within universities to to be more recognized as a field and to to feel a little bit more, um, maybe not even appreciated, but 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 needed even.
2: Wow, that's a that's a biggie. I. I guess I would, off the top of my head, I would say, you know, where where are the gaps, where are the things that are not being addressed within, say, departments, of specific department, And and what can you bring to bear to help with that? For example, I did a paper a few years back where myself and a colleague, we went into an architecture department. And we looked at their writing development uh, across the three years of their degree. Actually, it was four years because um, they did a work placement as well in one of the years. But what I noticed, this um, this was at the University of Bath. And what I noticed was in some departments, the students weren't getting a whole bunch of writing. Like if they're in maths or physics, they weren't doing a whole bunch of writing over the first two or three years. And then in the final year, they're expected to write a dissertation. So it hasn't been scaffolded. The, The development of their writing skills hasn't been scaffolded across the three or four years. And so they're having to jump from doing very short things like you know uh practical reports to suddenly writing a some sort of dissertation major research project and there's nothing in between so that's not been thought about you know writing has not been thought about as a separate entity and i know that in your work you know on, on liberatory writing practices i know you're very aware how important writing is in many disciplines and yet it's sort of you can imagine they may bother about scaffolding what I call IT skills. So they may be thinking carefully about scaffolding IT skills, but they don't think sufficiently carefully sometimes about writing. How how are you gonna develop their writing across the three or four years? So for the architecture department, we were at least proposing um, how that might be improved. It wasn't that they weren't doing really well already, But, you know, it hadn't been really explicitly thought about how do we scaffold writing skills across the three or four years. Now, I'd have thought that's a real area. It's part of your mission. You know, you're 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 going to reach potentially hundreds of students year on year through them improving the design of their curriculum across the three or four years by emphasising, addressing writing and the scaffolding of writing. So it seems to me things like that, where you can just show that they need outsiders Mm -hmm. like yourselves to come in and work with them to actually facilitate that change.
0: So it's working both with students and staff.
2: Yes, Yeah. yeah. I think that would make a marvellous research project. It would also be of obvious benefit to the university and to the department. God goodness knows what you'd learn from it, but you'd learn a huge amount. You'd also learn, wouldn't you, about if you were working with students and staff, the differences in perceptions. And wouldn't the staff find that useful, I would hope, mm. about how students perceive what they're doing? But what do the staff actually think they're experiencing could be something quite different
3: yeah
2: Um, sorry that's just an example but it it, that to me would be quite tangible Mm. and sellable (laughs) sellable and then um that's something you could do for other departments is transferable Mm. um it's holistic and i would imagine you know it would be hard to think it wouldn't result in something better A better experience, certainly for the students, I would have thought.
1: Yeah, it's having that greater visibility and using that to act as a kind of linchpin between these two groups of people. Yeah, through writing as well.
2: I mean, when I was at Bath, I was really lucky because I managed to um, get sort of learning development grants to do not, not. The projects weren't anywhere near as big as what we've just talked about. But you could do little projects. Often at the time, it was about online learning, mm-hmm. and you get you know a few thousand, a few thousand, ten thousand pounds, twelve thousand pounds, a little bit of money to do something, and then engage lots of lots of staff, uh, and engage students as well, and develop resources, for example. So you know, surely there's anyway. I'm I'm suggesting there might be money around to do that, and. Um, you know actually achieve something quite special.
1: Mm. I think there's been several call to arms in this conversation so far for learning developers so I hope everybody is taking notes and attention <laughs> and feeling motivated by this because I know I am. <laughs> um,
2: I, I've got to throw in a reality check here of course you know it's nice that you're what you're hearing from me talking today is sort of what I believe and what I seek to practice, but you can't always do it. You know, sometimes you've just got to be ruthlessly pragmatic and say, you know, we don't have time to do this. So the the best and quickest way I can deal with this problem is to do it this way. Mm-hmm. But what I've tried to get across is, you know, given, the, you know, the the best approach for me would be this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. embedded, holistic. Encouraging deep thinking, encouraging metacognition and dealing with the affective, you know, how students feel.
0: Mm. These are extremely important takeaways from your book. So thank you for inadvertently summarizing it without us even asking for that. Mm. (laughs) But this would be a great moment to just come back. to the pleasures and pains of writing, and what it means to you, because obviously you do. I mean, you didn't say it's your first identity, but it is your identity. You're a writer, um, so how do you feel about writing? What does it mean to you?
2: It's that's a hard. I find that hard to answer. It, I would say the word that came to mind was it's a compulsion. So I feel it's something that is an expression of me. That I have, I have to express in some way. It's an outlet. Um, I can't help myself, <laughs> in a sense. Um, so, you know, and I love the written word. I mean, I didn't come to this originally. You know, I'm not sure. I, I used to think when I was young. You know, I there were certain writers I loved. You know, I loved George Orwell. Um, his books. Um, I used to read a lot of science fiction, and I loved the stories that were being told, the ideas that were being generated, you know, visionary ideas. Um, Gosh, isn't this exciting? And you can read this book anywhere, can take it with you anywhere, um, and you go to another world. Isn't this marvellous? But I didn't think I would end up being a writer. So it's rather strange that somehow I did. But once I started doing it, it became more compulsive. So even now, you know, I don't. You know, realistically, it's harder to if you're a professional writer and that's how you make your money, that's very difficult now. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I was running this program for the Royal Literary Fund, because these were very successful professional writers. Um, But it's hard to make a living, you know, if you've got a family and you're trying to bring in income and um, pay a mortgage, it's quite hard to do that as a writer and relying Mm. on that income. And you can do other things, of course, that bring in additional income and, you know, working in universities would be one of those things. So I'm not sure how I'm answering you. It's a compulsion. Now I've sort of retired formally, you know, I still do things, I still get asked to do things that are sort of vaguely to do with academia. Um, But I've I've moved on to writing poetry. So, you know, to me, that's an area of expression that, that I haven't explored yet. Mm. And so you know, I've always had a background in um, conservation, environmental conservation, particularly marine conservation. And so I write poetry now that is, um, you know, trying to express that something about me in those forms of writing. And the sardine book was actually an expression of that because it's a bit like everything you wanted to know about the sardine, but underneath it was a hidden agenda. Which is basically you know there's this familiar fish that you know about i 'm going to tell you all these things you didn't know, and underneath it all is a conservation message, mm-hmm. so I want to sneak in so by i 'm not going to hit you over the head with it, but by the end of the book, hopefully you've been convinced that you you would be good to think more deeply about what 's going on in the ocean, you know. Um, And I've got bits in the book and and it was a challenge for me. The other thing about writing, it's always challenging.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, All my colleagues that are professional writers, frankly, the reason we keep doing it is because it's endlessly challenging. If it's just going through the paces again, then I'll move on to some different kind of writing. When I wrote the Sardine book, it combined uh, personal narrative. So I talked about, you know, what it's like to dive next to a ball of sardines when they're being attacked by sharks. So I could write about that. You know, I'm in the event. It's happening in front of me. I'm writing about it. And at the same time, the next page, I'll be sort of more scholarly. It's a sort of readable book, but it's quite scholarly underneath it as well. Um, And I wanted to combine those different elements. So I wanted to challenge myself and that continues. So I think we, you know, we continue to be writers because we find it endlessly challenging. And I'm imagining for you two, that's that's the same for you. You know, you're, you're learning all the time and you're moving into new areas of expression and you can see yourself carrying on doing that. Yeah, getting nods they don't they're not coming out on the audio but it sounds like you agree
1: <laughs> it's beautifully expressed as well yeah,
2: um,
3: yeah. no
1: it's true I, th- I think the challenge I'd agree with you the challenge is the enjoyable part because then there's the satisfaction of the job done at the end and you can look back and you you see what you've produced knowing the challenge that you went through to accomplish it for those people who see the challenge and run, what advice would you give them to stay with it, to overcome it, to get started even?
2: Well, again, I think you two are very familiar with this, but but it's, um, you know, it's about leaning on others and working with others. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, there is a lot we have nowadays that we didn't have two decades ago. There are lots of tools that can help you with your writing, you know, so if you've got, you know, if you've got dyslexia or whatever, you've got some issue. There's lots of things to help you. Um, There's Grammarly and all kinds of other things Mm -hmm. that can help you. It's not the end in itself. There are other people that can help you. Um, And talking it through with others and, and literally talking through the challenges you're experiencing. Because usually, of course, as you know, you discover that the things you're experiencing, others are experiencing or some are, and you can jointly find ways through that. And I think you've hit on it. You see, the problem is, I think a lot of people have ended up labelling for whatever reason, I'm not good at writing or I find it really difficult. I don't enjoy it. Well, you've got to do it. So what can you do? How can you find ways around those things? What can you do to make it as enjoyable as possible? You know, if I was talking to an engineer and they were having to write something, and they say, I've never been much good at writing. That's how I ended up as an engineer, because, you know, I can use maths or I can draw pictures. I don't really need to write very much. And so they've kind of avoided the issue as much as possible. But you could start to talk to them and say, well, hold on a minute, isn't you're really good at running projects, aren't you? You know, you're you're good at running engineering projects. Mm -hmm. Couldn't you reframe writing this thing as a project? So if you had to make this assignment a project, how would you do it, you know, and sort of reframe it? So I think if we can be you know this mutual support working with others is really really important I think um but also just revisiting the blockages you know what's stopping you? why have you ended up thinking that about yourself? How can we challenge that, and how can we just make it easier for you? To find roots around it? There's invariably ways it seems to me you know i've I've Worked with colleagues that have had all kinds of issues, and we've generally found a way around them. Mm-hmm. But I think it does come back to clearly it helps to make it as interesting and as satisfying as possible. Um, certainly when I work one-to-one with academics, you know, one of the key things that helps is engaging sort of intrinsic motivation. You know, you've you've got to publish your findings what are you passionate about about your work what's really important to you about your work what do you definitely want to be out there about your work and that will change the world or influence people in some way what is it it may not be the thing that your manager is trying to encourage you to write maybe something else but if you can enjoy you know um come at your own intrinsic motivation for doing something and and then match it to a potential outlet. Well, that's a really good journal for this. Um, It's not the highest ranking journal, but if I wanted to reach a wide audience, this would be a really good journal to do it. I may not be hitting researchers, I may be hitting more practitioners, but it would actually have more influence. You know, I think that's another factor is, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the benefit for you in getting this thing written and published?
0: So we have two elements, two key elements here, the, the, the intrinsic motivation, what's in it for you, and also the helpers. So my question now will be, as, will be asking about those helpers. Who are your helpers? Who have you leaned on and who have you drawn on or who have you learned oh. how to deal with writing from? I think
2: the reason I, I like modelling is, is that's really how I think... I learned to be a writer, you know? Um, I looked at what I thought was good writing and tried to figure out how they did it. So how the heck did this person, why Why do I like this writing so much? How did they do it? And I tried to unpick it. I'm, I guess I feel I'm slightly self-reliant. So it's, I, I don't think I'm as, I'm guessing. I don't think I'm as sociable as yourselves in terms of enlisting other people in things. But I know that in um, running the programme for the Royal Literary Fund, I learned a huge amount from my colleagues that were in the Mm programme. And I ended up, you know, writing things I wouldn't have written otherwise. So that sardine book would not, I'm sure be, I don't think it would have been written had I not, spent evenings in a bar talking to novelists biographers and all kinds of people talking about writing and I think that gave me motivation it gave me a bit more confidence Mm -hmm. certainly gave me more confidence to write in different styles and so on and yes
0: that's great that's great because writing is social right and writing is conversational and it's part of uh, it's just one voice, we were just adding one voice to the many existing voices, um, which is I think the beauty of writing, uh, it's never the final word it's just part of an existing and continuous conversation. And, and who are your kind of more formal influences? So uh, I, it really resonated with me, what you just said, you know, unpicking people's writing, because that's exactly what I did, especially that English is not my native language. I had to find a different rhythm to writing and and that involved a lot of modelling for me as well. Um, but uh, I wonder if you have certain people, and, and not just those you try to emulate in a way but also those who maybe taught you something interesting about the process the writing
2: process yes yes in fact i do if i can remember these people um okay i would say dorothea brand the book becoming a writer um it you may know it's a really slim book I wouldn't necessarily expect people to read it, although if they got a hold of it, they would read it really quickly. But it, it really crystallized for me this um tension between the creative and the critical. Um and then people like Peter Elbow have mm-hmm. gone on and written more about that, I think. Um they they've been quite important in, you know, those those are people that have influenced my book. Um, William Zinser to some extent as well. Um, so those are some of the people that were influential for me mm-hmm. in getting where I was in the book. There were, you know, the, the Hickman uh, and the other, what is it, the Hickman and Jacobson um, for the I-PACE model. Oh, but I'm a real fan of Helen Sword. So um, I really like her stylish academic writing book. Those are some of the people off the top of my head, but there have been numerous people. I probably wouldn't try and list them because I'd leave somebody out. But but certainly in the programme I was running, the the authors in that programme, um, some of them were tremendously influential for me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, for example, that, that came out in the book, certainly the latest edition i put in there was the notion of protagonist you know mm-hmm. protagonist in non fiction writing so you know what's the thing that changes most or what's the thing you want to focus attention on in your writing on this occasion that you will show is the thing that's changed most and of course that could be an idea um if it was a research project i think i used the example about a a malaria eradication project. Um, If you were writing about this malaria eradication project, you can just choose different protagonists to do right in different ways, um, to have different impacts. So for example, um, you could be right about the project team and how they changed as a result of doing this research
3: Mm. and doing
2: this development project. You could talk about the community that was impacted you know very high malaria rates they got involved with the researchers and developers they were very instrumental in changing practices and now how's the community changed you know suddenly their rates of malaria much lower your um protagonist is now the community the local community Mm. you could even talk about the the uh the fly that transmits the mosquito that transmits the parasite, the malaria parasite, you can make that pr- the protagonist so mm. if you're writing for scientists, you might make the protagonist the 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 uh, the uh, flies the mosquitoes that are flying above the dirty water in the surroundings, and they're the protagonist that's mm. being impacted by the changes, and you write it from the mosquito's point of view how the different practices have affected their survival. Wouldn't Mm. that be interesting? That's a different way of doing it. Mm. I would imagine Mm. scientists would find that really quite refreshing to see it from that point of view and Mm. so on. And that's something I learned from a colleague on the RLF programme about thinking about protagonists.
0: So in a sense, it's a storyline. It's a narrative that you choose, a perspective that you choose in your narrative. Well, you
2: can do. And and it's quite refreshing and interesting to do so. I know when I when I wrote my doctorate, and I'm not sure I did it necessarily consciously, but I definitely, I think possibly a lot of people do. In the space of a thesis, you've got the opportunity to sort of change protagonists. You know, particularly if you're doing a, a doctorate where you can reflect and put your reflection in the work. That's a kind of how have I changed as a result of doing this doctorate? Mm. Well, right there and then you're the protagonist. But elsewhere in your thesis, the protagonist could be an idea, you know, something you're testing, you're exploring. So protagonists can shift in the course of a thesis. I think it's quite helpful if you're aware of that and do it more consciously.
1: Wow, well, <laughs> I like that viewpoint. I really like that. Mm, thanks. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting way of,
0: of looking at writing. And again, that adds that creative element to mm. it, You know, even to just your thinking and planning around what that piece of writing should be. So we're kind of, um, close the circle (laughs) from where we started no and and of
2: course there's a lot to it isn't there you know that's why we talk about scaffolding you know just going through my book that what i've just talked and talked about is almost the last thing in the book because there's an awful lot that comes before um Mm. and and you can't do everything it's unlikely any individual undergraduate reading the book is going to take you know read the whole thing from beginning to end yeah. they won't you know but they may be two-thirds of the book that you know has been really helpful to them
3: mm.
2: i'm trying to think that colleague used a word for it i'm just trying to think uh john hilsden i think in himself he was talking about um learning development and what a complex construct it is But hey-ho, just pick out writing. What a complex construct writing is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we we keep changing the way we think about it. And I feel like every year, you know, I teach writing. My way of thinking about it shifts. And, you know, the problem I had with your book was that when I looked at it, when I was looking for it, first of all, I I usually just... um, Order books via the library or interlibrary loan. But I was looking at the excerpts from the book and I thought, no, I actually want this book. And so I bought it. And then, um, I started, um, you know, skimming through the book and thinking, you know, I just need a, a general impression of the book. And then I just started reading it because I couldn't kind of stop myself. So it was like on, on two different levels. I was really sucked into the way you you talk about writing. So, um, yeah, I, I I just feel like it, this, this conversation also reflects, you know, the richness of the book because I feel like it, we could continue, we could carry on and on and on. But I'm well, also worried. Yeah, thank you. Time. It's, lo-
2: it's lovely <laughs> to hear that. Um. That it's lovely that you got sucked into it, as it were. Yeah. Um
3: yeah.
2: you know, I, I guess that that is important to me that somebody just reading the first chapter, you know, would already, you know, I've got a particular voice, haven't I, in the book? Yeah. I've i tried to be like the person that's sitting next to you, helping you through this thing. Um yeah. so that I've tried to use that as my voice with the reader. Um, So we've got this thing to do, how are we going to do it sort of thing, Mm. or this is what I would suggest. Um, So it it seeks to be a sort of conversation, seeks Mm. to be, but I don't know whether it is. But that's certainly the voice that I was after. Yeah, Yeah. it
0: is. And also I feel that it, it models a particular voice that we can adopt with our students when talking to them about writing because again you know when you when you are faced with a group of students with a huge range of abilities, from those who are really strong at writing to those who really, really struggle with writing, it's it's quite a challenge to find the voice that will work for all of them and will address their needs without patronising them or without being too implicit and how to, you know, uh, kind of unpeel all these layers of complexity complexities involved in in writing so i think that the voice you adopt in the book i think it's probably what really captured my imagination as a as a practitioner as well thinking hmm, okay there are some other ways i could talk about this particular issue or that particular issue and and so i i fi- found it quite inspirational so i hope that our listeners will reach for the book as well and and find some gems in it for themselves as well
2: thank you very much that's really lovely to hear
0: is there anything that we haven't asked you? Because we asked so many things and that maybe you hoped that we... I mean, I haven't talked
2: about, for example, artificial intelligence and, you know, the challenges for learning developers now, which I, I just see getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. But it's still about messages we did talk about. So if we were talking about artificial intelligence, you know, um, and the use of chat GPT, I, I'd be going, yeah, well, the problem with that is it could just really undermine your creativity and criticality. So you could use it as a useful tool, but it could really undermine what you're doing. And if somebody, to me, if somebody's using a tool like that at the beginning of doing a task, then they're not drawing upon their own experience, they're not drawing upon their own creativity. They're just getting something from somewhere else and pulling it in because it's quick and easy, but that will shape everything that follows. You know I have big concerns about that mm. it It could be a useful tool, but you can just I can just imagine how people might be using it in the in the early days, and it's um it's going to become an impediment to mm. you know developing your own thinking. yeah,
1: no, thanks very much. I think we're definitely going to need to talk about artificial intelligence. Um, in more detail (laughs) at some point on the podcast but um, yeah thanks for raising that it's yeah uh...
2: I mean I I take my hat off to you because I think the challenges that you've had to meet recently um, it's been amazing an eye-opener for me that you know the move to online
3: Mm.
2: you know I, I myself and my other colleagues on the program pretty much everything we were doing was face to face so we were going into universities and working with students in rooms and overnight we had to go online and and i wasn't i really didn't know how that would go and i was just so delighted that by going back to sort of first principles you know learning development principles what you're trying to do you know um what What's the best way to do it? These are the constraints we have. You know, I was amazed how well it went Mm -hmm. and that, you know, things that I was doing face to face, I could do online. You know, I had to do it in different ways to be sneaky about the way I did things, but I could still wasn't quite so easy, was it, to get people working in groups? And actually, you know, if they were in front of you, you could wander around the groups. And just see all the body language and see how things were going. It's more difficult, isn't it, if they're in their separate rooms? But, you know, I was amazed how well it worked. But you've got all this to these challenges to face. But yeah, uh,
0: but it gives us uh, the hope that we might be able to to deal with this AI challenge equally well, maybe.
2: Exactly. I'm sure you will in time. It's just it happens so quickly, doesn't it? It's suddenly. Mm -hmm dumped and and you have to respond and i guess we can always say can't we with these things these challenges that we now have um they're just opportunities and, yeah. um, you know to help justify and and what mm-hmm. you're doing because you've just got new challenges to meet but mm-hmm. you know you've got more work to do and
1: constantly yeah. evolving yes yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly oh that's oh. great thank That's you right. so thank much. You much yeah <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank it's you been very great. much indeed it's been great. and thank you everyone for joining us today until next month